Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and I'm so happy to have Peachy Keenan back this time. You get to see her face, face doxing herself. <laughs> um, last time we had her on to talk about that book behind her, Domestic Extremists, which you should definitely go and, and buy and read if you haven't already. Um, she also has a very popular Substack, popular Twitter account. Um, you may have seen her various cultural hilarious cultural commentaries in, in all sorts of places. Uh, but welcome, Peachy Keenan, back to uh, High Noon. Thank you so much, Inez. I'm so glad to be here. Um, so I actually wanted to jump into something that you've been hilar typically hilariously writing about and, and talking about on, on Twitter slash X, um, which is this whole planes falling out of the sky mm. phenomenon. So, um, you know, if people haven't been paying attention to the latest scary stuff on the internet, um, there has just been a series of close calls of especially air traffic control problems with planes, bits and pieces falling off of planes. We had an incident where uh, a Boeing plane, uh, the bolts on the door weren't strong enough or weren't in place. Um, and, and the door opened mid-flight, causing an emergency landing and I believe like deaths, right? Uh, Alaska, no deaths, no, no injuries. They got lucky. Okay. That's mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Um, but, but then there was another viral story uh, just a, a day or two ago where um, there was a flight actually um, to New York coming in and a passenger, this is the scariest part of it. A passenger noticed that there were missing mm. bolts from the plane alerted right. a crew member and the flight was canceled. That's right. So like nobody else noticed just the passenger. So you know, what's, what's your theory on why, why nothing works uh, up to and including uh, airline travel? Yeah, you know, thanks, DEI, right? Everyone's blaming DEI, um, which I think is definitely one of the reasons for all this. But I think it's actually a lot worse than that. There's a lot of factors. Just this morning, it was reported that on January 20th, a Delta flight out of Atlanta was taxiing on the runway and the front wheel rolled off right before it started making its, um, its roll to takeoff. And they <clears throat> alerted, you know, oh, by the way, we just saw your tire roll off. The wheel literally rolled off the plane <laughs> and they had to cancel the flight and reschedule it. Um, so the first the first trigger of all this is like, yes, in fact, DEI is an issue. I was tweeting a lot about the head of F the FAA um, Civil Rights Division or whatever, who is the person who makes sure that DEI is being practiced all over the FAA, which means air traffic control, which means TSA, which means all of those rules, not pilot hiring per se, but everything else, the infrastructure. And he's a, he's a white male. So it's like, oh, wow, how did the white, how did a white male get to run all this? But he's actually an albino, blind and gay. So he, he checked <laughs> off. So he Sorry, is a white male. Like, that sounds like a movie, right? If somebody were Tom Wolf were to write a, write a satire oh, no. of what the only, I don't know, that yeah. just seems like something out of a novel, right? Yes, the head of the diversity department is white, but that's because he's an albino, right? And he's blind, and he's gay. right. So don't worry. Yes, yes, he's white, but he has three at least three DEI check boxes. Solid. He's good, right? He, he's blind. That's he literally that's like <laughs> solid for entrance to a mid tier UC these days. Exactly. He maybe he he would definitely get into UCLA. But the thing about him being blind is so funny because he really doesn't see color. So then how does he do the, the 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 diversity quotas, the hiring quotas? So there's been a lot of close calls, like you said. 
It was one in Austin, which had a couple that were tied to one specific air traffic controller who on the weekends is a, is a Black Lives Matter spoken word slam poet. And, you know, and his day job is air traffic control at Austin, in the Austin airport. And so there's a lot of people talking, well, is he qualified? Oh, the, the air traffic control test back in Obama's day was too hard. And it was thrown out because it was disqualifying too many candidates of color and too many white guys were getting through. And so they changed the test. And now the test is all about, you know, how do you feel about diversity? So there's that going on. The supplier who makes the plug door and who actually makes the fuselage for the Boeing 737s, including the door plug that flew off um, over Portland and sucked out some plane, some phones, but didn't suck any people out, luckily. Um, although it would have sucked people out if they had been a little bit higher. If they'd been a little bit higher, human beings would have been torn out of their seats and sucked through that window, 100%, which has happened before a couple of times in our history. Um, and so it turned out the maker of the, that airplane, the Spirit Aerosystems um, third-party vendor, was their website is just all diversity. It's just pride flags and women, women, you know, women-only divisions. And in fact, all four bolts of that door were not installed. I just watched like a YouTube video about it. They just kind of forgot. So literally, there's screws loose <laughs> in our system, and. Um, I don't like flying anyway. And the reason I post about this and tweet about this is because I feel like I've had, I've been, I've been afraid to fly for 20 years and finally I'm not alone. <laughs> All my knowledge of what could go wrong is finally paying off. And so I'm just going to milk it for as long as I can. Yeah. I mean, so th there's two, there's two more serious strains here that I want to pull out one, obviously, and DEI is sort of tied into both of them, uh, but only tangentially in a way, there seems like there's one, a manufacturing collapse. Um, and I've talked about this before, and I really think this one Addison Del Maestro piece, um, over at the bulwarks, the single bulwark piece that I recommend to people ever, um, <laughs> is this long description of why we can no longer, and people who listen to me for a while will, will uh, roll their eyes and, and remember that I've repeated this many times, but, uh, for, for people who haven't heard, there are these little star-shaped pastas, like very simple thing to make, right? That are very, very popular. Oh, um, yeah, they're called pastina, I think. Um, very popular in New Jersey. They Anyway, uh, the point is they were selling really well. That's not the reason that they had to cease manufacturing. The problem was that the machines that stamp the little pasta, uh, that make the dyes that then stamp the little pastas, right? Um those machines were wearing out. They were from the 70s, and there was no cost-effective way to manufacture essentially two, two lines back. You could make the dyes, but to make the dyes, you needed this second order of machines, and those machines were from the 70s, and it was no longer cost-effective to replicate them. Um, and so those particular types of dyes that made the pasta were essentially impossible to manufacture at cost, um, anything close to cost that would make it possible. And it really scared me. Like that piece really scared mm -hmm. me because you start to think about the implications for everything that we make. Um, not just that, that the, uh, the machines that are directly involved are now in China, but the machines that make those machines are often decades old. We don't really have a cost-effective way of making them again. Um, and 
furthermore, and this goes to the second piece that I want to pull out, there, there, there is a crisis of knowledge of how to make these things. Right. Um, that, that you can't find people who know at, again, at cost, like these are the sorts of things, yes, you can learn from scratch again. We're not stupider than we were, although if we continue with DEI, we might be. But like, we have lost the technical knowledge. As a civilization, our knowledge, uh, collective knowledge is contracting. Um, and that's such a terrifying idea, right? That we are in this contraction of civilizational knowledge. And I think it's going to get, I don't think it's going to be a smooth and slow contraction to the point that we're not like, like with Pastina, that we're not really noticing it. We're going to have a very specific drop off when all the boomers retire. Um, and believe me, I've complained about the gerontocracy and politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I do think culturally the boomers were, not all of them, obviously, but like the zeitgeist of the boomer generation was very much the the kernel of a lot of the cultural problems that we get to. So I'm no like, you know, I guess cheerleader for the boomer generation, although, of course, I love my parents. There are many boomers that I love. Um, but but um, no, I'm, I'm legitimately worried what's going to happen when all the boomers retire and we're essentially left. Gen X is very small. We're essentially millennials are a generation of people who don't know how to do anything, like anything concrete. What is going to happen? And I do think we're going to start having bolts falling out of things. Yeah, there was that great article, the competency crisis that a lot of people were talking about. And then I was tweeting about, yeah, we're going to miss the boomers when they're gone. And obviously people, how we hate them, let, let them go. But they are, whether you love them or not, they are eventually fading out. And, but they're the, really the last generation that knew how to like make things with tools and metal and machinery. Like not everything can be digitized guys. Like some things require this kind of like esoteric old knowledge that, as you said, is not being handed down. And even worse, the pastina pasta um, example can be replicated now. Uh, that's happening in a lot of different industries and it's happening in places that have much higher stakes than just making star-shaped pasta. And I'm sure you know about what's going on with like our ICBM um, miss missile like readiness. Like we have all these ICBMs that we've been building since the 1950s and they're stored in big underground, you know, places um, in like Montana and in Wyoming or wherever, and they're ready to fire. You know, if we're in, ever in World War III, these are the only weapons that we have that will maybe save our lives. Like, I, I don't want that them ever to be used, but, you know, I don't know. I guess it's good they're there as a deterrent, right, through, peace through strength. Um, but I've been reading article after article about how the men who knew how to kind of update the ICBMs, because they have, like, nuclear stuff in them, like, I don't know, plutonium or whatever. They have, like, nuclear cores. They have to be, like, updated. They have to be maintained. It's, like, very difficult to keep these ancient... They're now like 40, 50 years old to keep them ready. And the guys who know how to do it are like dead. They're like gone. And the new guys don't know how to do it. And then the things you need in, to fix the missile or to update the missile or whatever, we don't even have them anymore. There are things we don't even know how to, we don't, we don't have them and no one knows how to make the parts. And so literally I, I would say, and they're saying some estimates are very high, like a, a large portion of our ICBMs, Inter intercontinental ballistic missiles, like nuclear warheads, essentially, are literally obsolete. <laughs> okay. And who knows that? Does do does China know about that? Like people know enemies that we cannot, like the Pastina machine is one thing, but like we can't make a nuke. 
And that's a good deterrent to have. Like if we didn't have those nukes, we would already, I think, have been nukes long ago. But um, <laughs> so the boomers are gone. We, we have we're not passing on knowledge. No one knows how to like run a machine anymore. And yes, over time, I think within the next 20 years, we're going to see breakdowns of big, big systems. Um, man, airplane manufacturing may be one that's kind of first, you know, because that's such a busy industry that they get so, so much wear and tear on those planes. But we're going to see like city water systems, sewer systems. The supply chains are kind of broken everywhere. Like, I don't know. I can't, I can't make my own airplane. Like I can grow some tomatoes. You know, but in terms of like self-sufficiency, I can't like make a new suit, my own sewer system. So we might be in for a wild ride. Yeah. I mean, this contraction of knowledge and the lack of passing it on. I mean, it. look, I'm all about bagging on the institutions. I think they're right. Their trust in the institutions have, have rightly, you know, gone into the toilet. But it really highlights the the danger or at least the downsides there's a reason that successful civilizations have strong institutions because there, there needs to be um, a way of passing knowledge that is more than one can derive sui generis in a single lifetime, right? That That is, to, I mean, in some ways, that's literally the definition of civilization, right? That we don't have to do everything ourselves and therefore stay on a subsistence level, you know, you know, the whole eye pencil thing, right? Which is usually used as an example about global global like globalism and global trade but you could just as easily take that example and say if you had to do if you have um had to do each step of this yourself we wouldn't even have a pencil right it's just it right. you you revert to a pre-civilizational right. state where everybody is responsible for themselves and mm -hmm. so the, the 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 sort of uh i guess the curveball and the thing that's different i mean we have had civilizational booms and busts we've had dark ages and it's very disturbing to think about, but we might be entering into another one. I think another point in favor of that, by the way, is massively declining literacy rates, which um, is one of those things that meant, you know, like in that historically has, has um, been, you know, it, it was a remarkable thing in the early United States that it had the highest literacy rates in the world that average people could actually read and write down knowledge exactly because it's it's a better way of passing knowledge is a more enduring way than oral tradition in many ways right um in any case the curveball here i think and this is this is sort of uh this is definitely somebody what i would call a techno optimist like richard hanania right is just we can our, our few brilliant people can invent so many ai tools that can replicate all of this for us that essentially we don't need we don't need competency. Um, so even in the case of the planes, so he Richard has advanced the the argument. No, actually, we won't see an increase in um, accidents or or uh, you know incidents or God forbid plane crashes uh, because essentially the technology is getting better and better and better, um, and we can put idiots in the cockpit and we can have idiots turn the screws and yet we will just invent. Um, a, a such a technologically sophisticated uh, plane that you really don't need anyone at the end of the day to turn the screws right. Um, and I, while I'm sort of unconvinced by that argument, it's not something to totally dismiss. I mean, I, I had a friend in in um, who who worked in a nuclear submarine running the nuclear 
engine of the submarine. And he used to describe it as invented for geniuses for morons to operate. <laughs> and uh, I, I mean, th you have to consider that. Like, But that's also a very dystopian and depressing future where you have a handful of brilliant people who essentially know how to program the AI and everyone else is an illiterate drooling idiot who doesn't even have the bare competency to create and turn a screw. Yeah. The argument, I saw something today about the missing screws in the Virgin airlines plane that was leaving uh, England heading to New York and some a passenger looked out the window and saw four screws missing. And um, <clears throat> the argument was, this is not DEI, this is not, you know, supply chain, this is just young men with no skin in the game, who just don't have pride in their work anymore. They're not trying to make sure everything's right for their own, so they can sleep at night and think, well, I really did a good job today, I'm doing great at my job. They don't give a shit anymore. These are low paying maintenance jobs. They're probably stoned. They're probably looking at their phones. They're just checked out. And these jobs have very high stakes. That's the problem. So you put idiots in those jobs, people who don't care, who are just punching a time card and hate their lives, who have no pride in their in their jobs. These are, okay, menial labor, blue-collar labor, labor, but we used to have, people used to have, take pride in their work product, in putting in a good day's work and getting those planes safely to where they're going, planes full of, you know, women and children. And now no one cares. And I think that's another problem that we have a young population that is drooling idiots. And I don't want a drooling idiot to be the one making sure that the wings are screwed onto the plane. I would rather that person, he doesn't need to be like a high IQ genius, fine. But I would want that person to at least have pride or to at least make sure, be checking all the boxes and making sure, being careful about things. And then the other argument against Hanani's argument is that, it, yes, AI um, will will make flying safer, in what and the, and the technology of a of a you know totally digitized airplane will take a lot of the human error out of it. We've already managed to do that, but there will always be situations um, when something goes wrong. And we're not going to make, we're not making any more Captain Sully's anymore. So in the, in the Captain Sully example, when he, you know, the birds took out the engines and he had to land the plane in the river, in the Hudson River, and no one died. Um, no one will ever be able to do that again. God forbid that ever happens, that plane is going right into the, diving right into the, into the ground. So what you want in an emergency, you want, you know, a Chuck Yeager type. What you're going to get is not going to be that kind of person. I listened to the cockpit recording of the Alaska plane when the door plug flew off um, at 16,000 feet or whatever. And it was chaos and the it was depressurized and it was such the force was so strong that it actually blew open the cockpit door and tore off the first officer's um, headphones, which is the only way that they can hear what's going on. Right. Like it was total chaos in the cockpit. But when I listened to the, the recording of the pilot, a female pilot communicating to the female ground person, the pilot was in a full state of panic. Like it was like my, how I would be <laughs> in that situation. Okay. I would be in a full, like she was almost crying. She forgot what city they were going back to. She kept requesting diversion to Seattle and, she, and then saying, I, I mean, Portland. I mean, she was unbelievably terrified. You could hear it in her voice. And that just contrasting that with how Captain Sully sounded 
when he said we're going to be in the Hudson. You know, it's night and day. So, I mean, I choose, uh, I, I want to return. Okay. <laughs> now we can't, there's no going back. So we're going to just have, we, we are, I think, going to have some more disasters despite the safety of the machine, of the, the digital technology. Yeah, that's my gut instinct too, especially because I, I think this comes down to how much of the unintended consequences and just the, the chaos that exists in the world do you think is predictable, controllable? Um, how how much do you think the human condition and the world around us and the natural world can be managed? Um, and that is like a really deep philosophical question. Um, and I, I just, my overwhelming gut instinct is it, we, we can't, right? That no matter how smart we or our machines get, um, that these are incredibly complex systems and you just don't know when a bird is going to fly into your engine. Right. Um, and you can maybe like design an engine where the bird can't fly in, but then like something else will go wrong. I just have this may maybe, you know, almost quasi religious belief that <laughs> right. these are incredibly complex systems that cannot be predicted um, in, in such a sort of top down bloodless way that you really do need adaptability, real time adaptability. Um, but yeah, but even, even if it were true, like I said, I mean, it, it's also, it is a, a dystopian, um, I don't see that as progress for sure. No, it's, it's a band-aid. I don't, I don't, I don't see it a society in which most things are managed by AI or computers, right. um, and has such a huge disparate, uh, sort of gap, not just in resources or wealth or talent, which has always been the case, but in just role, um, in civilization between a handful of people who are essentially keeping the lights on with the benefit of very, very smart machines. And then just a, a undifferentiated mass of people who are entertaining themselves until they die. Like that, that is not progress from, I don't know, to choose a, a kind of poignant example from the town hall in Plymouth, Massachusetts, uh, the self-governing mm -hmm. communities there. Um, you know, centuries ago, I don't see that future as progress from where, where I guess, where the pilgrims started in Massachusetts. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think relying on technology to fix the things that we, 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 we broke is such a, uh, a dead end. And another example of that is, for example, fertility, right? The, the broken, for, the fertility rate is crashing. People aren't um, talk about losing, you know, esoteric, deep ancestral knowledge. People have forgotten how to find a mate, how to get married and how to have a family. And a lot of the solutions for that, the transhumanists and the futurists and the tech and the Silicon Valley people are like, well, don't worry. We're making artificial wombs. Haven't you heard the good news about the artificial wombs? We don't have to worry. Fertility solved. We have IVF. We have artificial wombs. We have this and that. And to me, that is not progress, as you said. To me, that is absolute dystopian horror masquerading as progress. And I, I don't want to live, I don't want to live in that future. You know, and I think we'd make a lot, we'd have, we'd have a lot, we'd all be a lot better off. And we would preserve our souls and not burn in hell. If we could somehow take all the work going into novel reproductive technology, which has a lot of side effects, and we don't even know the side effects 
What what happens to a child born in an artificial womb to two pedophiles? What happens to a child? What happens to a child in which the function of mother is split at least into three, right? Genetic mother, natal mother, I guess you could say, the, mm-hmm. the woman who carries the child. Uh, and as we know, a, a you know tiny percentage of, of the biological processes that happen during that period, right? But we know that there are thousands of very intricate connections formed between the mother and her chi- and child while the child is in utero. And then the social function of mother, when those three are three different women. Right. And then some children go through that process and they end up with no no woman that they call mother. The, the word mother doesn't exist if they're being if they were purchased by a, a single male or a male couple. Um, so we don't even know the ramifications of that yet. And you know, then we introduce artificial wombs, and you could someone could potentially have, and these are coming. I've been assured by the tech people that these are coming. So within 5, 10, 15 years, someone could, a single person could buy embryos, could make their own embryos from various uh, egg donors and have a room filled with artificial wombs, 20, 30 babies. I don't know. There's no limit. We have no laws about this. And so, and that's being described as great progress. And that's going to save humanity. This is going to save our population from declining and I think all that effort, all that technology, all that money, all that hum- all those that, the human manpower there, what if we could just divert that into encouraging people, finding ways for young people to afford to raise their own family? I mean, that to me seems we'd be a lot better off. And um, but we're not, we're hurtling towards literally a brave new world. Yeah, that really, I, I, I do wonder how much of this comes down to a sort of pre-political gut instinct, because people I've had the same experience as you have where like tech people, and maybe we will chat. Uh, I, I wrote a piece. If anybody uh, is interested in first things about Palo Alto, Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley ethos. Um, but I have an instinctive, I have an instinctive reaction that this is dystopian. And as you say, even like bordering on horror. Yeah. Um, and I just, I know there are a lot of people who don't. They just don't. Like they hear what we just said and they're excited. Right. This, like, this thrills them. Um, <laughs> I guess I watched Jurassic Park too many times, you know? Right. <laughs> it's too scary. Like, and there's the uncanny valley aspect of it, which I think is real. You know, I mean, I would never, I feel like I would be able to tell if someone was a replicant easily, <laughs> you know, or like a robot or like in, uh, non-human or whatever. I don't understand but, how people can't tell the difference between AI generated and not like it's so I know. obvious to me. I both totally visually agree. and in writing, like I, I can immediately tell, and it's not because yeah. it's technically wrong or what, but there is, there is something missing. I, I took a quiz, um, and I do mm-hmm. think some of it is like the equivalent of being a digital native. Like we won't be quite AI natives, but I feel like the people five or ten years younger than us will even more easily be able to tell between AI um, mm-hmm. and not. But like I took a quiz of. Uh, different sentences or tweets, I think it was, like written by AI and written by real people. And it was so clear, it was so mm-hmm. obvious to me. Um, but th- because of that, there is that like uncanny aspect to it. And all of the images generated have almost a sheen to them. Right. Um, that is just like, even if they got the right number of fingers and the right number of teeth, you know, <laughs> like there's just, the, it's always obvious to me. Um Whenever I see the image on top of an article, it's AI generated. I immediately know it as opposed to like a cartoonist. They actually hired, went out and hired someone right. to do an image. Um, it's just, it's just so 
yeah, there is that uncanny nature. And I, I don't, I don't know if that's a soul or what it is, but some, something, there is something off about a lot that is created, which I'm, I'm sure it's can be, and it looks like it's going to be an incredibly powerful tool. But the question then, I think Spencer Clavin has framed this the best way, which is if you have a society already philosophically that has reduced man to a type of organic machine himself, then yes, like we are replaceable by AI. Uh, but we're, we're not going to be able to ignore that question anymore. That, that question of what makes a human being human. Um, and, and what is, you know, what is the mind? What is the soul? Like, do they exist? How do they interact with a corporeal, um, or like an embodied nature that we have? These are philosophical and untheological questions that, cause yeah, I, but I have this overwhelming, I just immediately overwhelming dystopian, like uncanny mm -hmm. Valley, like recognition that is again, pre-political. I can't imagine telling Richard Hanania this, by the way, but he, he would just like <laughs> assume that we are like uh, religious cultists or something. But but I I, I never I like I I'm not a very woo woo person. I don't generally I'm very like sort of rational based, and I don't go by instinct or or whatever because I, I don't think my instincts are that great. Um, but this I have or like a very strong instinct about mm -hmm. that I'm I'm almost just justifying rationally. Yeah, this is like I was just reading today about how Elon Musk had a big falling out with one of the Serge Gabriel and the Google founder over AI. And Elon, they had a fight. And Elon was like, no, I prefer humans. I'm a humanist. Sorry. I just kind of think human beings are awesome. And they had like, they apparently they like never spoke again or something because Serge Gabriel was like, full blood, full AI will win. You know, yes, I want it to win. And I think there might be like an economic divide where like the poors, the middle class, have to kind of um, sate themselves with AI generated everything, AI generated entertainment, mm. pornography, whatever, you know, textbooks written by AI. Mm. And only the rich will be able to afford things made, handmade by human beings, whether it's the art on their walls or like the pornography done by actual living human beings on screen, right? Because the AI stuff will become like the schlock. And like people are using AI art for articles and stuff as sort of like, I think I, I take it as like very ironic. Like you can make really funny images with AI art now on Bing and stuff. And it's like funny, ironic, but eventually it's not going to be so funny when we realize that we haven't seen like hand-drawn art or illustration or even like computer, computer aided illustration in a long time. And everything has just been about inputs into chat GPT. The, the, the Metropolitan Museum has in its antechamber now a AI, the first AI exhibit. That will be a really That's interesting. dangerous. That will be a really interesting <laughs> debate. Like when, when AI art enters the museum, that'll be a really interesting debate. But like, yeah, well, no, what you prizes. just said reminded me of, of 1984 mm -hmm. or was it Fahrenheit 451. I always confuse like different scenes of those two books. I hadn't read <laughs> yeah, either yeah. of them for 10 years. Right. Um, but but whichever one that has the the like guy who's in charge of enforcing the the rules again, I think it is Fahrenheit 451. Okay. He has a library, right? Of of all the stuff that's illegal, all of the art and the novels and uh, the books that are illegal, he has and he has access to, but he says no, but like ordinary people can't have access right. to this. Right. And I think you're, you're completely right about how this will 
bifurcate. I had never thought about it before, but yeah, yeah. But like the rich people will have a human, two humans in the cockpit of their Gulfstream jets. Okay, you and I, the the the, the dirty peasants, will have a robot. We'll have an empty cockpit, and the robot is going to fly us. But the rich will never do that. Yeah, there there is this element of the degradation of the middle class experience, which I feel like what we're talking about it in this very um, sort of forward looking, um, either we use the word dystopian a lot, or but at least uh, speculative sort of way, mm -hmm. it feels almost sci fi. But if you look at in the very concrete realm, how the middle class American experience, the speed with which that is degenerating, is actually incredible. Um, because when we're talking about, we, we had debates in 2018 or whatever, um, Orrin Cass, who's been on this program, or about looking at the chart and the degradation of, of the purchasing power of the middle class over time. And then there's some guy at Cato who says, no, that's not true. Actually, we purchase more square footage than we used to with the same amount of whatever. And they go back and forth and they try to describe this thing. Um, and now I feel like the debate is almost over on that because everyone can tell that their middle-class experience has degraded so sharply from 2019 to now, right? Not, not 40 years, not 50 years, not something where you're talking to your parents and they're like, <clears throat> things used to be better back in the day. And you're not sure whether that's nostalgia or whether there's actually some concrete difference, um, or degradation here, this is a portion of life that every adult, you know, can actually remember and, and feel and touch. And I feel like it's night and day. I mean, just using the flying example, not like flying was wonderful in 2019. It was still a piece of crap experience, but the experience of flying in 2023 versus 2019 is night and day. Going yeah, to the I mean, grocery store in 2019 versus today is different. It is noticeably different and not because things just cost more, but because, for example, I now take it for granted that when I go to the grocery store, sometimes they just won't. I'm not saying they're out of things the way they are were during the pandemic or something like that. But like, let's say you wanted a tri-tip and there's no tri-tip today. You know, you have to get something else like that. Even that minor relatively minor change like that. I never even thought about that in, in 2018 or 2019. I never thought the grocery store is going to be out of the cut of meat that I want. Yeah. Or here's an example as a mother, um, my whole life and up until the pandemic, you had a sick kid, kid woke up with a fever or rash, something throwing up and you wanted to, to have them seen by your pediatrician that day. And that pediatrician visit would be covered by your insurance, right? It's just part of like a well baby thing. And so they would say, oh, yep, come in too. We got to get you in. We really want to look at your kid. Like, yeah, we'll be there. I'll go. Come right in. Since 2020, if you have a sick child, and now even now post-COVID, right? Like no one has COVID, okay? At least as far as I know. You call them and you're like, my kid is 103 for four days. Like I need to have them seen today. I want to rule out you know, meningitis or whatever. There will never be a same-day appointment. They'll say inevitably, well, sorry, maybe you can come in like, you know, nine days from now, uh, make an appointment for two, two weeks from now. And you'll have to say um, they're really sick and they'll every single time, oh, we'll just take them to urgent care. So the local urgent care for the last three or four years now has been my 
only pediatrician that we see. And they're not pediatricians. They're just like random ER doctors or physicians. they don't know your kids and they don't know medical history of nothing. And they're not like what I grew up with was like an an old time uh, pediatrician who, you know, was had been practicing for 50 years and seen everything. This wonderful, kindly old man. Those guys are gone. They've all retired or died. And the new one is like a 28 year old resident who has five minutes and doesn't know anything about pediatrics. Maybe they do. Sometimes they'll send you to the ER if they're like, oh, I can't stitch that up. But there's no getting into your pediatrician. You cannot see a pediatrician unless it's for a annual checkup and you have to make that appointment like six months in advance just to get in. And I no longer enjoy taking my child for their checkups. I used to look forward to it. Oh, how much do they weigh? Let's check out, make sure they're all good. Um, see how much they've grown since the last time. I, it was always like fun for me. Now it's this insane mother effing minefield where they try to push like multiple different vaccines on you. What about the HPV vaccine? You have got to get the HPV vaccine. This is your last chance. Well, I don't want to get, well, what about COVID? Are you up to date on COVID? They're still asking that if you're up to date on your COVID vaccines. Okay. And they wanted, and and I just, now I'm so reluctant to go in, especially because a couple of years ago, I had to bring my 16 year old at the time in for his annual checkup. Okay. And the female doctor kicked me out of the room and I knew vaguely why she was kicking me out of the room, but I was like, well, I just wanted to, I want to see what happens. And I knew my kid was like, he'll be fine. He'll, he'll, he's like a tough guy. And it turns out that what she asked him was he was in his basketball uniform and she said, are you comfortable with your gender? And then she proceeded to give him the rundown of how to use a condom, how to to prevent uh, STDs. And this is a devout, we're, we're a Catholic family. Uh, my children have had sex education from a Catholic perspective and they're not having sex. And we're, you know, we're trying to raise them in a world where that's something that you're going to wait for. Okay. And she just assumed that, well, of course he's having sex. 15, 16 year old boy, duh. But let me first ask if he's comfortable with his gender. <laughs> and so since then I am like, I don't want to, I, and they're all like that. Cause that's like the rules now. And, and later on, she actually admitted to me, you know, we all think she asked me like my 12 year old about his gender. And I'm like, why do you do that? I was like, what? Cause I had to keep going to her. Cause I don't have, there's like very few options and she was nice. I was like, he's a boy. Why do you keep asking children that? Like, doesn't that confuse them? And she said, I'm not supposed to say this, but none of us want to, but we have to do it. We have to ask these questions now. And I was like, that's not, not, that's not, like psychologically that's damaging, like, hello. But, um, you know, talk about dystopian and talk about the de- degradation of the middle class. What, what used to be so easy, just getting your kids seen by a doctor in your neighborhood, you know, that's gone, 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 gone. Yeah. I, I am probably that competency collapse. I'm most afraid of in medicine. Um, I, I have a pretty, and I, I, you know, my husband and I go back and forth about this stuff, but um, I have a pretty uh, naturalistic perspective generally on medicine, which is not to say I don't use it. I mean, um, and actually, like, if anything, I one of the very f- sort of few to me clear cost benefit analysis positive interventions of medicine were vaccines. Uh, and I, I was like totally gung ho about taking the COVID vaccine. I was not afraid at all. And then, like, 
they they blew my my confidence in that too. Yeah, no, right. You know, um, <clears throat> but like I just I generally have this this perspective that I think we overuse medicine. I mean, I think it's really really valuable when you really need it. I'm very grateful for antibiotics for the ability yeah. to do surgery under anesthesia, right? You know, have people going into shock. Um, I think there have been these, these enormous, so I'm not, I'm not like totally woo woo. I don't like, you know, whatever, like treat cancer with, with, uh, uh, rose hips or whatever it is. I'm not like that, but I do have this perspective. Like I don't, I don't take, I take almost none, no over the counter drugs, almost never. Like I, I think we're over medicated. It shocks me how many drugs, like relatively healthy 30 something people are on in America. I just, I think we're not we, we aren't, we're not considering the, the sort of cost benefit and enough. We're not considering side effects that every, every intervention has enough compared to just, I mean, this sounds very, very Slavic, I admit, but like just a little suffering, you know, sometimes you just suffer a little and it's okay. Um, but so that's my perspective. And so I've always been a little bit kind of skeptical. I don't go to the doctor as much as people say that you should or whatever, but like, I, I always felt, okay, well, if something bad happens, like there'll be you know, I'm very grateful for Western medicine in that sense. And I, I, I don't know, especially as, as like you and I, our generation and in between, I guess you're technically Gen X and I'm millennials, but like the people, as, as we get older and really do need medical intervention uh, in important ways, the people who are going to be, they're going to have no, no, pardon my friend, like no freaking clue what they're doing. They're going to be the, dro the drooling idiots. Yeah, well, that and that's the thing. that is the problem that with the this AI model that we're talking about, mm -hmm. like, yes, maybe the AI, you know, will be able to diagnose people. Right. Um, but if you talk to any serious older doctor and um, I have, you know, um, both Jared and I have medical people in our families and we talk to like you talk to anybody serious in the medical system from 30, 40, 50 years ago and they will tell you this is more of an art than a science. There, there, there is, yes, there's a ton of science that goes into it, but there's also, to your point about the pediatricians, there's also knowing what's normal for that kid over time, right. what tendencies, what biological, like body tendencies that kid has, like maybe he has a tendency, you know, to, um, to not absorb vitamin D over time and you shove them outside more. Like, like there's a, there's a thousands, millions of these things that are unique to each person. And that that having a doctor who knows you over time and and is, is knows when something is is potentially worrying and when it isn't because he's actually not just like the bare minimum that's on your chart but actually has seen you for twenty years over time and knows like oh this person this is normal for this person and not for that one right, right. Um, those kinds of things are not repl replicable that kind right. of knowledge is exactly the sort of knowledge that is dying out with boomers as boomers retire. And like, I don't know, it, it, it really does terrify me. Um, cause we're not peachy when we're, when we're in our seventies, you know, look out, look, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're just going to kick off. Like there, there's not going to be, they're going to be like, uh, go to the ER and the, and the AI is going to say, you are, you are 79 years old Bye. Time, time. <laughs> and reference and, and shunt you down to the maid corridor. Mm -hmm. The real, the real uh, black pill is thinking about what's going to happen to old people in nursing homes when the staff is no longer a bunch of like, you know, highly experienced, um, skilled nurses, 
but they're literally hiring people like off the street, basically um, minimum wage, the, the drooling idiots. Okay. That Richard wants us all to have, they're going to be the ones responsible to like change your diaper and make sure you have food and give you a glass of water. If you're dying of thirst and move you around and help you get dressed. I mean, in that, in that point, like we already see videos of like old people being beaten up in nursing homes. There's horrible videos of like old white women being brutally beaten by like um, black orderlies or whatever, like that, that genre of video is almost as prevalent as like the white kid getting beaten up by the black kids in the high school. And it's terrifying. And so at that point, like I would say I would prefer an AI robot in my nursing home versus like some sketchy human being who, who, who probably hates me and is going to go back and read my tweets. You know what I mean? <laughs> like know who I am and like, okay, I'm going to like take this bitch down. I would rather bring me the robot. I'll take, I'll take the artificial human. What if, what if the robot is programmed to dole out? <laughs> right care on an, a DEI hierarchy. Though. Right. Right. And the thing is that's also happening with the humans. No, I know. We're, I've that's seen. Of, yeah. Yeah. There, there was a hospital that said we have the right to kick out, kick you out of our ER. If you say offensive word or have some, you know, we don't, you, you are, you offend us in some, in some way. We, we, we don't have to, we don't have to actually help you. You can bleed out on the street. We don't have to save you. And it used to be like, well, we, we, if a cop finds someone like raping a kid and shoots him, they still have to take that person to the hospital and the staff in the ER still has to try to save the life of that like child rapist. But now if they like look up your tweets and, oh, you said, so, oh, you like Trump. Well, fuck you. Like F you, like you're out. Excuse my language. Um, and that's a scary place to think yeah. about that we're going. <sighs> well, I'm working blue today. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 we'll bleep it out. It's okay. okay sorry. Um, no, like, no, I'm just depressed. It's not about, I know. it's not well, about, something about I'm just depressed. <laughs> like this is, this is truly terrifying, especially how disconnected, like it's not disconnected in the ultimate sense. There's obviously there are, there's ideology behind this, right? It's not apolitical, but it isn't directly political, right? It's not like, the Republican Party has one vision and the Democratic Party has another vision and like they're going to fight and like maybe we'll win, maybe we'll lose. Or even there's a left and a right and we're going to fight and one of us is going to win and one of us is going to lose. These are more like the Industrial Revolution coming in mm. yeah. and completely remaking the world right. uh, in a very short period of time. And then... The but I feel like those bedrock the, the way I do think it's connected ultimately to worldview and ideology is uh, those foundational bedrock ideas upon which the gale is blowing are so weak. Our communities are so weak. Mm -hmm. Our families are so weak. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, our our yeah. nation is so weak uh, that I I feel like we have a category five hurricane barreling down on something that is like, look, you know, maybe even if you have really great, you know, the really strong castle and the great deep stone foundation, like this, this kind of hurricane might crack those. Right. And it's coming towards us when our foundation is made of straw and sand and put together by drooling idiots in AI. <laughs> Well, we're still going to have great memes, though, as we go down, right? 
here's how we fix it. I wrote a book on how how we can get out of here. How we can write the ship. Yeah, no, actually, let's close out with this. Um, I'm really curious, given that you wrote Domestic Extremist, and uh, I would give the one sentence summary that Domestic Extremist is a way to try to build a natural and good life and family in a world that makes that difficult in a very pragmatic way. It's not like theorized, over theorized. It's not a, you know, a series of, of essays that the type of the type that I might write in person, <laughs> right? Um, it's very pragmatic. Okay. If, if I look ahead and I see, let's say if, if you're a 25 year old woman and you look 10 years or 15 years down the line around at the millennial generation and say, I don't want that. This is the book for you. Um, Good summary. Mm -hmm. So given that is something you've thought a lot about and lived, um, what do you think about the trad wife sort of trend? Um, There's all these TikTok videos that are jumping over to Twitter and it seems like every week there's a new trad wife and people react really strongly to it. But then on the other hand, sometimes it is just barely disguised pornography, you know, <laughs> like it's just um, something that is clearly meant to be a fantasy for men. Uh, strangely, a lot of these trad wives don't seem to have like husbands in the video. <laughs> right. It's just Who, are they even married? Image, right. Um, but what do you think generally about this phenomenon? The fact that it seems to have caught on as kind of a niche subculture with some potency and numbers behind it. It's funny. I wrote a Substack, uh, I think last year about the whole trad wife trend that was starting on TikTok with that girl Esme who made pies and her very low cut fit, like Marilyn Monroe hairdo. And she would, had, was very busty, you know, and leaning over with her pies, you know, and then there's the whole ballerina farms phenomenon of like the very, very rich couple who has this like, incredibly perfect farm life, but it turns out they're like multimillionaires. Um, so, but it's funny though with Traz is that it's like, don't let your memes, you know, your memes can become dreams and it's almost like fake it till you make it. Like we can joke about Traz all we want, make memes about the Traz, but the fact that it's like Traz are trending and Traz are kind of trendy does feel like a pushback. It does feel like a reaction to the over the top TikTok you know, non-binary, furry, polyamorous, like, you know, horrible looking, unappealing freaks, the freak show. People are just like sick of the freak show and people, oh, they enjoy looking at an attractive, slim young woman in a beautiful kitchen, preparing food for her you know, in a loving way for someone she loves. That is romantic. That is aspirational. That is absolutely a fantasy. So I approve of all that. But I think what I wrote in my Substack was, that's not like what the real trad wives of America look like. Okay. I don't look like that. That's not what my kitchen looks like. You don't want to, I would never show you my kitchen, but the real trad wives are what I would, I would revise it and call them the trad moms because it's funny. Most of these trad wives, I think don't have children yet. Okay. Now to have children or not have children, you know, I'm pro-choice there. You can have children or not, but you can't really call yourself a trad wife if you, if you're also child-free because the real trad wives are the trad moms who are literally spending their days covered in vomit, spit up milk, 
Uh, their breasts are leaking. They're trying to feed the toddlers. The house is very messy. There's toys everywhere. They're screaming. You know, the mom's crying. Like, that's the real trad life. And that is not glamorous. It's not aspirational. Okay. But that's where it's actually getting done. That is where it's not about baking pies. It's not about looking cute. It's not about your hairdo. It's not about even having a clean kitchen or a beautifully gleaming, you know, farmhouse sink. That's all fine, but it's not, it's bullshit. <clears throat> so I approve of it. Like I'm in favor of it because anything that can bring in, it's kind of like the carnival barker outside the tent, bringing in the young girls who are like, oh yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm sick of being lonely. Yes. I want a husband I can cook for. I can stay home. I can quit my stupid fake email job and just make cinnamon rolls all day. Yes. Like I do want that. Okay. Like feminism was wrong. So that's bringing them into the tent. But then once they get their ticket punched, really what it is, is you're like knee deep in, you know, toddlers, um, you know, pooping on you. Like, that's what it is. <laughs> that's a good thing. So I, I, I guess a couple questions. So I don't think the, so that's, the, that's a lot of the pushback, right? Is, is against this trend has been sort of the vein of the second half of what you said, right? This is real trad life. It doesn't look like this. Um, it's not this aesthetically pleasing. There's a lot of, you know, tears and a lot of bodily fluids and <laughs> like involved right. in this life. Mm -hmm. Um, but it strikes me, I mean, like that, that's less a critique of the trad wife trend, I think, than it is just of social media generally. Um, you know, nobody, everyone knows that, uh, like these fashion influencers or whatever, right. That, um, there's messiness in their lives too. And, um, but they are only showing the pictures of themselves in the bikini in Tulum um, and not um, a million other aspects of their lives, not yeah. the rigorous way in which they li they live in order to look the way that they do. Right. Um, or even, I guess an even better example might be the, the models who are like cramming huge things of pasta into their face. Um, right. You know, that those girls do not eat that way. Um in any case, right? Uh, this, and, and that is an ongoing critique of social media, and it's one that's valid in some ways, I think. But I also think it's fine to have aspirational archetypes and images. I mean, if you, I think those things are generally a positive thing. I, I like looking at beauty. I, I don't know that, I, I don't think, I think people are being a little bit too cute when they say they're shocked that, um, Nobody actually believes that that there's no messiness going on behind the scenes of ballerina farms, right? The question is, what is aspirational? Is it a model in Tulum or is it this also like model-esque beautiful woman in her perfect kitchen on her farm? And that's that's a question of which ideal is being prop, you know, put forward, not is it comparable to the average schlub's life? Because in no cases is it comparable, <laughs> right? Um yeah. So that I think is 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 a little bit overblown, but my question and my sort of objection that I've been, but I'm not sure how I feel about it, mm -hmm. um, that there is something particularly uh, sort of ick-inducing about commoditizing in this way something that is so intimate and familiar as family relations, as raising children, um, as the things that you do for your husband in, in your private home, 
Um, and I realize that we live in a society where everybody puts everything out for an audience, but I wonder how much the audience really does transform. I, I wonder how much the audience is incompatible with any kind of trad lifestyle, not because of the, the issue of like, does it really look this way, which we all kind of know it doesn't, but just the act of doing it for an audience, um, something that is so intimate. Now, so you're maybe questioning like the motives of the women in the videos. Like, are they doing it for the right reasons? And I think the I answer is probably no. I'm not even questioning their motives because I don't, I, I know they're, you know, they're doing it for attention, um, which is not the worst sin in the world. I know that we like to bag on e-girls or whatever for, uh, it, it's not, it's not the worst. Look, every young woman wants attention. Every young woman wants adulation and, and wants, you know, even old women. Come on. Yeah. I mean, we just know. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we're not going to humiliate ourselves. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, no, but that's like a very forgivable impulse in young women. So I, I don't even necessarily, that doesn't bother me in itself, at least any more than any other ways in which this could be used. But there is something uniquely icky to me about farming for attention in this way by using those things that should be private, those mm -hmm. things that should be intimate. Um, and by the way, I feel very similarly about uh, the the video. I don't know if you've seen this one of, of the woman after she has, it's a black couple. Um, she, the woman just had a, a C-section and she's recovering from the C-section and she's showing how her husband very kindly is like taking care of her, changing her clothes, like establishing her on the couch, then going to cook dinner, cleaning the kitchen, right? And it's, it's, it's a very sweet video in a way, um, but it just, it just feels wrong to look um it feels wrong that it was shared with such a wide audience to me um there is no is intimacy and i don't mean sex although you could apply this equally to pornography but um is intimacy something the the thing that is worse to commodify in this way and is it contradictory to any kind of real traditionalism or tradism to do this for an audience. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think your instincts are right. I think it is contrary. In other words, I wouldn't necessarily want to be the husband married to that woman who's every day I leave for work and she's making cute videos. Okay. Like, yes, that would be, maybe it's a red flag. Like, well, how is she going to have time to have the children I want if she's just spending three hours doing her hair and doing her set and her lighting for her video. What, what about what about school drop drop off and pick up? Like, there's no way to do both, in my opinion. Um, so that would be a yeah. I don't think you want to be married to that type of woman. Although, I mean, I guess my husband might say, "Well, Peachy, if there's if this is the only way to get you to clean the kitchen better and like <laughs> make make homemade pies more often for me, like go for it, girl. Like just you do you do TikTok. Like maybe it's a trade off." And maybe that's what I need to do to inspire me even more domestic than I am. Yeah, that's um, like um, that's why I have uh, that's why I have regular dinner parties just so like I have to I have to clean everything. You know, yeah, it's no, the exactly. regular. <laughs> right. That's how I keep myself in check. Right. I'll actually put on shoes and like get myself together, and then he'll come home, and they'll be. But if I only if I video it. So, but no, I don't, I mean, yes, it is contrary to trad, but I think, like you said, just the fusion of 
you know, just like being a digital native, there's no, there's no line anymore. There's no, what's private is private. What's, you know, render onto Caesar. What is Caesar's? There's no more. It's all being rendered onto Caesar. Like all of it. Any, every moment of your life is being rendered to your audience because you can monetize it and it's clicks and you know, whatever. Okay. Like that's not like, I have a hard time even understanding all of it. Um, so I think it's just, maybe it's trad 2.0. It's like the new trads, like this is just what they're. And then when they do have a kid, they'll be making the intimate videos of changing a diaper or, you know, nursing, you know, I don't know, like pumping their milk. Like, I don't know how far we're going to go here. Um, you know, treating, uh, taking care of the episiotomy stitches on their way. I actually think that is worse. Like as in. (laughs) I already prefer there's there it puts a layer of distance between the viewer the audience and the the intimate life for everything to be perfect you know what I mean because you know that it's not like that normally and then there's the opposite of like people who just have no privacy whatsoever and they want to show themselves in the ugliest and most disgusting light and that's that's even worse that (laughs) that's even more that's even more like um losing that border that you're saying that nobody is going to have anymore between right. the private and the public. Right. I, I mean, there's a reason I have a, a pseudonym, you know, I definitely still feel like I want, however thin, however tenuous, I like to have a little bit of arms uh, length to like the digital people and the internet and all of that. Like before I mm-hmm. started, you know, my book came out, there was not a single photo of my actual face like anywhere on nothing. Like I think I had no Facebook. I was never in photos. I like, I, I, I remember once like contacting Google to like remove one photo I found on a Google search of me years ago from like some school, like, you know, anniversary party or whatever. Cause I just didn't want to be searched. Of course now <laughs> that's all ruined now because I had to write a dumb book and I have no choice but to try to you know promote the book. But I have a natural reluctance to breaking that barrier of like privacy and intimacy. I don't want like that to me is like, so I don't want my kids out there. Like, I mean, they, they are, some of the older ones are on social media. Um, It's, it's nerve wracking. And I'm, you know, I don't, I'm worried that like creeps are going to come, but they're just to them. It's just, well, this is what you do. Like, there's no, it's fine. It's my friends, mom. Like, don't worry about it. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a new world. Yeah. Well, if, if this conversation is any guide, then we have more uh, dystopia to look forward to. Oh, yeah, we do. Stay tuned. <laughs> well, Keenan, you can find her work on her Substack. Um, you can also find her work uh, in her book, Domestic Extremist, uh, which really is, I want to reiterate, not just because I blurbed it, uh, but because it's, it really is, it, it is that pragmatic. If, if you feel like you like listening to some of this stuff in the world of ideas, but you feel this huge gap between your life um, and the ideas or the ideals really that you want to want to pursue in your life. I feel like Peachy Keenan's book, Domestic Extremist, is a very good glue between those two things. Um, thank you so much, Inez. So sweet. Th- thanks again for coming on. And My thank pleasure. you. pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or iwf.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.